This is exactly right. We focus on, oh, be be aware, be aware, be aware. You need to unlearn as much as you need to learn. Because you've spent 40 years or 35 years of your life thinking that you have a handle on things and you absolutely don't. I argue that unlearning patterns is much harder than learning new ones. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is completely aligned with what we just talked about, and that is Emotional Literacy with Dr. Shahana. Dr. Shahana Alibi is a professional speaker, family physician, and mental health expert. She's worked with a multitude of national organizations, including the University of British Columbia, Scotia Bank, and Remax to help them gain more clarity into their mental health. As a lead physician at one of British Columbia's largest youth health centers, much of Dr. Shahana's career is focused on those struggling with their mental health. She's been featured in multiple major media and is best known for her emotional literacy for Better Mental Health TEDx Talk, which is wonderful, and as a panelist at International Women's Day. Dr. Shahana is passionate about shaping policy around child and youth mental health by bridging the gap between healthcare and social emotional education. Dr. Shahana, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Okay, so let's. I know you have a story you're going to share with us. How this, how your, how your um, foyer into uh, as a mental health expert in emotional literacy came to be. But before that, tell us about where you're from and a little bit about you know what your upbringing was like that led you to uh, where you are today. For sure. So we definitely share similar but different geographical regions. Yes. I'm in British Columbia, about an hour east from Vancouver, BC, which a lot of people are probably familiar with, in a small, somewhat not so small anymore, town called Abbotsford, British Columbia. I actually grew up around this area and went to school, including medical school, out at UBC, But probably the most pertinent thing to know about my upbringing is the story of my parents. Hmm. My parents were refugees to this country. They left with the exodus uh, that Idi Amin was responsible for. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a famous movie about that now. And they, at a very, very kind of transitional time, their adolescence, they were told that because of the color of their skin, which is true, any brown person was asked to leave within a very short time frame. So if you think about the implications this has on their kids, not mm-hmm. only are we aware of the color of our skin, but we're also aware of the magnitude of generosity Canada gave to us hmm. and this implicit nature of giving back. Uh. And that was something that was ironed into us at a very early age. And I think the easiest way to give back is through education, right? It's to Mm -hmm. leave no stone unturned, better yourself, become, you know, whatever those top three professions that people perceive as doctor, lawyer, engineer, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And although that was, that was wonderful and that was very helpful Personally, it put a pressure on me to always be the best. Right. And that became my identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the best physician, the best in your class, right? The, the, the achiever, um, that's a lot of pressure. All of the above. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it at a young stage, I think there is an innate quality in all of us to survive. 
And if we think about high school as the social meat grinder, you're right. <laughs> um, yeah. It can you quick you quickly have to establish who what you are known for mm-hmm. and what you stand behind. And mm-hmm. I hid in the academic world. And a lot of that was because I perceived my identity to be transactional. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I help you on this test exam quiz, then you will like me. Right, right. For me, identity was transactional. And it all came to a head the day after I graduated high school when my one out of one best friend looked at me and said, the only reason I was friends with you was so I could cheat off you. Whoa. Whoa. So this only solidified the need that I'm, I don't have a choice but to be the best because that's all that I'm known for. But I think I'm not alone in, in needing to bolster or cushion ourselves with some sort of layer of protection. People do it with their looks. People do it with their sports skills, their drama and musical skills, whatever the case might be. But oh, do do I wish that I knew at that time that people could like me and love me for who I was. The problem was that I didn't even know who I was. Right. This is why my work with the youth is is so fulfilling Mm -hmm. and something that I am a magnet towards because I see myself in them. You know, there's so many, in my experience, um, there's so many different roads to um, the pressure to achieve and um, perfectionism, um, as as people know who listen to show, as a yeah, self-proclaimed recovering, per- perfectionist and recovering myself. Um, and I'm curious, because of your parents' story and um, your immigrant story, where that where do you think it came from from you because i mean obviously there's this need to like earn like like be the best earn your place give back but you know i know you've given this some thought over the years given the, what the work that you do like where do you think looking back that drive to be the best to achieve at such high levels came from well a i wanted to make my parents proud Mm-hmm. I wanted them to feel like they were successful. Not once did they ever do that, but it's the subtle things. It's the look in their eyes. It's the feeling of, oh, and I, it's funny now when I look at my kids, I'm like, will I ever rest until they get the six figure job? Like, isn't that the uh, irony of parenthood? It's like mm-hmm. y- you want your child, you don't say it, but we all do. We all do. We all want our kids to tick off those boxes. White picket fence, happily married, two kids, six-figure job, like all of that. And I, you know, if anybody can disagree with me, great. But I know I'm working on my expectations. So I think in some ways I was trying to fulfill my Mm -hmm. parents' expectation and fulfill Mm -hmm. their bucket and tick that off their list. Mm -hmm. And moreover, I didn't... I was a shell of who I who I was and what I thought I could contribute. But academics was the shining star for me. So why not hold on to it like a life float when you're drowning in, oh, right. in high school? Oh, yeah. And I did. Yeah. And I mean, when you are good at something, and that's something, like you said, it could be, it could be sports, it could be dance, it could be academics, public speaking, whatever it is, art. Like that does become it's instant gratification and positive feedback in an otherwise maybe landscape of negativity, loss of identity, um, identity exploration, bullying, all of that stuff. Right. So it's natural to hold on to this thing that we're good at and that we get um, such positive feedback for. Um, I've always been with so many of my clients over the years, um, working with a lot of um, very um, bright and um, intellectually and academically endowed folks. I, there's so many times that a teenager will say, you know, just because I'm the best math student in the school, everyone thinks I'm supposed to like it. I hate it. You know, and there's this, or piano or whatever, like it's there's this conflict and... You know, I'm just wondering, 
as a parent and as a mental health professional of teenagers, like how do you, what do you recommend to parents for us to be, you know, we share this word awareness is a major theme of our work. Like how do you recommend parents think about the pressures that are on them to be successful parents by raising successful kids while not too much feeding into this, um, I don't know. It's not a false identity, but it's not a whole identity of a child. Uh, of course, of course. I always joke that there are, you know how there's five stages of grief? There's five stages yeah. of parenthood too, mm. right? I think you go from absolute denial, like I, I can't believe that this is actually happening to me, right? <laughs> to blame, you want to blame somebody, yep. to utter resentment, mm -hmm. right? Then there can be phases of anger, I'm, I like to live in, in the martyr or the sainthood region. Oh, you know what? I'm a mother of three and just like, look at me. Once again, look at me, look at mm -hmm. me. And what I teach parents is that, or if I, if I'm, first of all, I should say, if I'm fortunate enough to have a parent in their room, because a lot of the times these youth right. are dealing with it by themselves. Mm -hmm. But I once just... Just a couple of weeks ago, I had an encounter where the mom was in the room and she just broke down in tears. And she said, you know what? This is, it was about her. It was, it was less about the youth and more about the story she was telling herself, the significance mm -hmm. that she felt that she deserved, but wasn't getting the acknowledgement that she needed. So I had to shift and I had to talk to her and give her the supports that she needed, but I tell you, there is nothing that will show you your personal bruises until you have a child. <laughs> yeah. A child will show you everything that hurts and stings and pinches and all those things that you should have addressed, but none of us do. And that's right. okay. Right. But it's so much less about them than it is about you. But guess yeah. what? Awareness is much about, we focus on, oh, become, be aware, be aware, be aware. You need to unlearn as much as you need to learn. Yeah. Because yeah. you've spent 40 years or 35 years of your life thinking that you have a handle on things and you absolutely don't. Mm -hmm. So I, I argue that unlearning patterns is much harder than learning new ones. I will, I, I will agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and then there is this process of, how do we become aware of what those patterns are? How do we become aware of what's my stuff versus my kid's stuff? Right? Like that, it, 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 that's digging. It doesn't just come naturally. I always say awareness is an active, not a passive process. You don't just sit and become aware. Mm -hmm. It is, and it's, and the clock resets at midnight. You could be really aware for one day. Right. It resets. It's like Cinderella right. every night. Right. right. So you have yeah. to keep doing it. And I think a lot of us don't want to be aware, just like we don't want to clean up our messy room or dig into that closet that we stuff everything into. It's much easier to close the door. Mm -hmm. It is. So it is. the junk just keeps building up. So to be aware, I tell my youth and the parents that I work with that you need three C's. And before you do this, don't go start being aware. So you need curiosity. Mm -hmm. You need to have genuine curiosity without critiquing yourself. That's even I don't do that. That's easier mm -hmm. said than done. You need to have some compassion for yourself because why the heck are you doing this in the first place if you don't love yourself or at least appreciate yourself? And then you need to have a cushion or connection. You need somewhere to land that's soft. Mm. You need some someone, somebody to go to when you're suddenly opening up that closet. So get those three C's in place before you start doing any digging. That is great advice. So curiosity, compassion, yeah. compassion. and connection. Connection. That's huge. That's huge. Um, and we know so much of, um, even before COVID, what we the literature was starting to show and now it's showing in a big way is one of the number one um variables um or precursors of depression is lack of connection isolation right and so much of mental health has to do with being connected to a person a family 
um, a a spiritual community, right? A team, a neighborhood, a friend. Like, how much does that change the possibility for health and wellness? Oh, it's. I don't say it's not self care anymore. It's others care. Mm-hmm. It's others care. You have to surround yourself with a community that cares so much about your self care that mm-hmm. they will hold you accountable. Yeah. But if you're talking to a youth like this is in in British Columbia who's you know going through the foster care system or who's on what well, we have an independent youth agreement so they can't stay with parents they're not in the foster care system so our government gives them money every month to stay by themselves and they're 15 wow. and that is the lesser of two evils so I had a patient one time, she was so incredibly iron deficient. She's like, I can't stand up to cook because every time I want to cook, I faint. You know, and I said, well, you're 15. And then she's got mental health issues on top of that. But we are talking about baseline shelter, food, and then building up from there. So it's almost as if, and I hate to say it, that social connection these days has become a luxury item when it should be a necessity. Right, right. Okay, so let's go to your other story, um, the one that everyone, I highly recommend um, Dr. Shahana's TED Talk, uh, TEDx Talks, it's a great talk, and where you share your story with the world, which um, in reading your reviews, one of, the, um, one of the ways you are praised, one of the main ways you're praised is about your vulnerability and your humanness and your realness. Um, And so I just want to highlight that and thank you for that because we do all learn from other human beings being human and sharing those vulnerabilities with us. So tell, tell us, tell us the story that led you on this journey to become an emotional literacy expert. Sure. Yeah. And I think so many of the roots of course started in that ideal of perfectionism. And I was often Finally, in medical school, I kind of felt like I was in a groove because suddenly, you know, all those people who were isolating themselves in the science lab, well, they all came together and that was called medical school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and I remember talking to my friends in medical school going, you know that we all can't be the top because one of my friends got 96% on her first exam and she was devastated because she didn't get the top mark. And suddenly I, through the series of, you know, um, looking at these people struggling with their own mental health, I got perspective on myself, right? That, you know what, there is more to life than this. And if we're passing, then we're, we're, we're going to chug along in this journey. But I was often the brunt uh, end of the joke in medical school because people wanted to specialize in, you know, all of the high economic yielding professions, dermatology, ophthalmology, surgical specialties. And for me, my specialty was motherhood. All I ever talked about from day one was, I want to be a mom, I want to be a mom, I want to be a mom. And I have to say, looking back, do you know what the truth of that was? Yes, Mm. I did want to be a mom, but I wanted a break. Yeah. I wanted a socially acceptable break. I wanted a break where I could strap on an apron, take care of a baby, have some music playing in the background, and breathe without somebody saying, implicitly or explicitly, what are you achieving right now? And I thought growing a human was a great excuse for that. (laughs) I'm being facetious, but at the same time, this is the truth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after the four years of medical school and the two years of residency, you, you work your butt off for that and your confidence comes, it's shaved down to a sliver of what you thought you had. Like if I started off whole, I was just scrap pieces by the end of it because medical school prides itself on the shame phenomenon. Mm. So if you don't know, I remember telling a friend one time, I so wish I could go into a rotation judged, you know, for something else versus my brain, (laughs) maybe my dancing abilities, maybe my looks, but it was almost the fact that if you don't get that answer, right, you're garbage, Mm -hmm. you're garbage. So that six years of putting that under under fire made me even more want to become a mom and step away from that world. So lo and behold, you know, six years later, we had our first son. And just like I told you that kids show you your bruises, babies do too. (laughs) It starts right there. Babies do too. So the thing that I never, in my TED talk, even I, 
I made myself rewatch it because I'm not sure if you're like me, but I always find it hard to, yes. to listen to myself or watch yep. myself. Mm-hmm. This is easy. It's the right. hearing After, myself afterwards right. that's hard. But I, I actually... I actually lied a little bit in my TED talk because I used the words postpartum anxiety, which is true, Mm -hmm. which is true, but I didn't say the words that I, I couldn't utter at that time. And those words were postpartum OCD. Mm, Yeah. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. So even talking about this is, is really difficult, but I do it because Mm -hmm. my oldest is, you know, six and a half. And at that time, People are talking about postpartum OCD more now, but yeah, certainly almost, you know, six, no. 10 years ago, we no. didn't talk about it. Mm-mm. So for those of your listeners who don't know, postpartum OCD is under the umbrella of postpartum anxiety. And with postpartum OCD, one of the most common intrusive thoughts that you can get is, could I cause harm to my child? Right. And you can imagine how distressing, destabilizing, stigmatizing shameful these thoughts are. Mm-hmm. So I lived in this awful soup for the for a year. Mm-hmm. And the only way out I felt was that, okay, I just don't want to be here anymore. Like that would be the simplest solution. Right. And it took me a year to reach out, get confidential help and start talking about it. Mm-hmm. And now if I see a mom or even a dad with a newborn, I will tell them it is very normal to have intrusive thoughts. Are you having any? Because we need, no one is going to volunteer this stuff. No. No one. No. And can I just say, I, add add to it just for the listeners as you were talking yes. about the fear of causing, um, the fear of causing harm. And it's also common when people are struggling with those intrusive thoughts that you are actually having thoughts that you might even want to harm someone. Like it it can get very scary um, from a fear of doing it to a fear of, do I actually want to do it? Will I do it? Um, And I want to normalize that too um, for people listening because of course you feel like you're the worst person in the world to have a thought like that. This... This is why you have your podcast. Like, honestly, right now, we're losing women and we're losing parents because of this. And I I spoke to a counselor and she said the happiest part of her day is telling the mom that I'm not going to take my baby, your baby away from you. This is, this is, this can happen and it can be normal and there is treatment for this, but oh, do we live in shame? Mm-hmm. Oh, like it, it took me so much mental, physical, emotional energy to crawl myself out of that, that shame tunnel. So, mm-hmm. and here I am, I'm a physician. I'm supposed right. to know this stuff. And I don't, not mm-hmm. that I, I know it in a textbook, but I don't know it in myself. And guess what? The part of the TED talk was that was the most true was that I was a hypocrite. I felt mental health was a you problem, not a me problem. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a me problem because guess what? I thought I was too good for it. I thought I was too studied, too educated, too this, too that. But guess what? It happens to all of us. So it brought me to my knees. And I think now when I look at a youth and we even talk about something like anxiety, I tell them, I said, I know, like, are you having that feeling that you just, you can't catch your breath because you feel like you're just running on a hamster wheel? Do you have this feeling that you don't feel anything? We keep Mm -hmm. saying, do you feel low? But a lot of times it's that you feel nothing and that's okay mm-hmm. too. Right. So this common language is what is the one gift the experience has given me as well as hopefully if a mom or an expectant mom or dad is listening or watching this or you know somebody and they're suddenly becoming more introverted, not seeking help, they could be, it's a really scary and difficult time. So mm-hmm. normalizing things as much as possible is also part of the awareness piece because you don't want to go into that closet, just like we said, if mm-hmm. you think that something is utterly wrong with you. Right. You know, where I just uh, want relate to you is um, towards the end of graduate school, I had a very difficult period of depression and anxiety. And the first time that I'd experienced those um, at a level that it was something. And it took me a long time to, so here I am studying to be a psychologist. It took, I held out as long as I could to reach out 
for help because of, I think, those perfectionistic, I'm supposed to be able to do this on myself. There's not supposed to be anything wrong with me or I'm, gosh, I'm going to be a psychologist. Um, and I, I say about that time that that was the most important and painful experience that I never want to have again. <laughs> but it changed the way I was able to experience being a person and work with my clients in the same way that you said that. It's like to be able to truly understand and reflect that um, is really important. And I'll even say this is um, as I was in my therapy and my psychologist, who I trusted very much, was saying, hey, Dan, I think it's time to look at some medicine. Like, mm -mm, no, no medicine for me, just for everyone else. He's like, don't you recommend it to your clients? I'm like, well, yeah, when I think it's necessary. And I had to look at that next layer as well. Um, and then going on medicine for a time and it being helpful, that experience has helped me so much with clients when I'm trying to guide them and understand the trepidation, the, you know, anyways. And so it's like, it's, this stuff has become so real when you live it and you don't just study it. It was, I think you bring up such an important point because that first call that I made to the, I wouldn't even see my own GP, my family doctor about this because I was too proud. Remember, mm -hmm. I had to call an anonymous physician helpline and I tell them my story and they said, you know that you're going to need to see a reproductive psychiatrist and you know you're going to need to start medication, right? And my answer to them was, you know what? I feel so much better. Thank you for letting me vent. Right. Okay, bye. Click. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we want, it, it's an, and this is, this is a thing that I even, you know, now try to teach my kids. Nobody would ever argue that you're exempt from exercise or eating a healthy diet. Like some people just don't do it, but nobody I think would be in their right mind to say that they're too good for exercise. Like right, <laughs> I've never right. heard that before. Right. Right. So if we all have a brain and we all have a mind, then we all have mental health. We have to stop feeling that mental health is a you versus an us problem. It's mm -hmm. an all of us problem. I have a sense again of of the background stuff that I did um, to prepare listening to you that um, your your treatment became like the residency for your next your next uh, your next period of work in the field of helping humans. Uh, oh, of course, yeah, and that's. <laughs> the ironic part of the story, and I guess the ignorant part of the story, is when I I love to speak. So when I saw that an opportunity had come out for for TEDx in our in our local region, the theme was reimagination. So I remember sitting at my computer, and this is how ignorant I was, and rightfully so. We I went to medical school. We I graduated in 2012. So yes, it's been quite some time. But the words emotional literacy were never uttered in our medical school. So this, so I remember sitting at the computer thinking, if only my, the youth I could work with knew something. And I kept thinking, okay, physical literacy. What if, what if I called it emotional literacy? And I really believed I had coined the term until I Google search it and go, oh, this is a thing. Like, and it's yeah. not a little thing. It's a big thing. Yeah. So it was, it started from those very ignorant roots and it led to a place where, how did I not know this stuff? Mm -hmm. How am I 35? And I didn't realize that emotional literacy is the crux, the keystone, you know, the foundation that we should be teaching our youth. But guess what happens in the medical profession? A youth comes to me, it's listen, hopefully, diagnose, treat, out the door. Listen, diagnose, treat, out the door. And treat is usually medication. Right. So I got so sick and tired. Patients would come to me, well, I need antidepressants. Well, first of all, I'm not arguing with you. But second of all, can I have the luxury of listening to you and hearing your story? They were almost trying to save me that step. And I kept telling them me signing my name at the bottom takes about two seconds. I can't do that with a good conscience until I hear your story. 
Mm-hmm. And then you start to see the puzzle pieces come onto the floor. And right. then you start to put that jigsaw puzzle together. But if we're only using medication as the cornerstone of treatment, I argue that we are missing a huge, huge preventative component. And I don't have the luxury of seeing these kids every day, but right. the education system does. Mm-hmm. So therein lied the root, the threads for my TED Talk. We're all working at this in silos. and. We still are. Like nothing here in BC really has changed. There are inklings towards progress, but I have no idea what they're teaching in the education system. So I see a patient for a half an hour and I don't, I can't even help them hone in the skills that I don't even know that they've been taught. Mm -hmm. Right. So we need to stop focusing on a downstream view because all that ends up with is a used up prescription pad. Right. So what, how do you define emotional literacy? So of course, like if we look at the true definition for, from Dr. Daniel Goleman, there's those mm-hmm. five pillars of it. And I think the school does a pretty good job of a couple of things, you know, the social mm-hmm. skills part, maybe the empathy part maybe a little bit of the self-regulation, but in the diagram that I showed, the key piece to me was the awareness. Right. You know, if you could pick one, I'm sorry, but I, the, if I'm struggling and working on that, and like we said, the clock resets at midnight every day, just like moving your body every day, that is the part that you have to train your brain. And that is the part that needs to be taught elementary through to high school. And I get it. Teachers are exhausted and the curriculums are already, you know, bulging as it is. But this, if I, when I do get a chance to have some time to speak with youth, this is what I talk to them about. What does it mean to be Mm self-aware? Just because you feel something, the idea of, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. Just, just because you feel like, you know, your heart is racing. Well, let's break that down for a second. Let's break that down. Is your heart racing? And do you have a corresponding anxious thought? Because a lot of the times we get so drawn into the physical systems that we equate physical symptoms to having a mental thought. And sometimes right. those two things aren't connected. Right. I, um, so I, I've often thought of this with my clients as teaching metacognition, this thinking about our thinking. You know, like we don't, as humans, we're not taught, like we could, we have thought, but we don't even have to believe our thought. And actually, our thought can actually be lying to us. And we can actually look at it and change it. And you just reminded me of a client I saw in the past, a teenager, high schooler. And she had her first panic attack in um, traffic on the way down from the ski mountain. You know, they were, they were trapped. She's in a car. And it, as any, for anyone who's ever had a panic attack, it is terrible. It's beyond terrible. And then you're petrified of having another one, right? But she was an athlete. So to the point that you're making is she would do wind sprints for one of her sports and she'd start to get the heartbeat that she experienced when she had a panic attack, which would put her into a panic attack because she would say to herself, it's happening again. Another time she said it happened again. I said, well, what, what preceded this? She said, I had two energy drinks really quickly because I was tired. I'm like, well, that's going to raise your heartbeat. And what did you say right when your heartbeat came, you know, was, was, oh my gosh, here it goes again. And isn't this Dr. Shoshana, what you're talking about is teaching these kids about the connection of just because we feel something, we need to think about what we're thinking about it. And if it actually holds true, or do we need to modify that some way? Completely. And the first step of awareness is noticing. So I give the analogy as if you were a fisherman on the bank of a river and you're casting that line in, that's the separation you need between you and your thoughts. Your thoughts are floating along the river. That net or that line that you cast is that physical space. We don't, it's like taking a piece of gum and stretching it out, right? And just seeing how long it can stretch. That's the space you need between you and all that muck, that garbage, that thoughts, that inner dialogue, the inner roommate, whatever you want to call it. But guess what? Many youth and many adults don't even know that they have this radio that will never shut up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the best thing you can do, and I tell this to youth, is 
the radio might continue. All I'm asking is turn down the volume. Right. And how do we do that? How do we do that? Right. And yeah. that's, that's that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and just that, that is a first, a conversation that this is how your brain works. And th- these are the things that we can talk about to help you with that. Like that's, I've always felt like that's 50 plus percent of it. Just that that's even an option. Exactly. That you're giving somebody a youth who I just had a youth the other day. She's been in 24 different schools and she's 15. Mm. Like that's your start on life. Like it's very easy for me to tell her, Oh, don't believe your thoughts. Don't believe. Well, like, no, I don't know her background. I don't know the trauma that she's been through. I don't know her story. But mm-hmm. I can give her a piece of power. And exactly what you said, that power is that you can create that space. You are not your thoughts. And you know what? You know, in the olden days, when I used to ski, the best analogy I can give, remember those little rope toes that used to hold oh, on yeah. to to take you yep. up to the top of the mountain? Mm-hmm. That was in the olden days. But I rem- the rope toe that I use for youth is, what do you want to be? Like what, and I I can't, 95% of the youth I talk to have a vision. They have a goal. And I think they're still naive enough because the range, the mean age that I talk to would be about 15 to 16, somewhere in there. So I had a youth the other day say, you know what? I either want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon or a tattoo artist. Like they're, they don't know what it means to be a surgeon necessarily, but they can dream and they can yeah. dream about having an impact and having a purpose. So the only carrot I can dangle is how are you going to serve yourself and other people when all of this stuff is said and done? And that is their rope toe to the top, mm. right? Yeah. Well, and that rope toe uh, in knowing your work is using emotional literacy to create emotional resilience, right? So tell us about that, you know, what, what is that outcome? What is emotional resilience? So, you know, if you think about emotional resiliency as the outcome of emotional flexibility, right? Or agility, I think this idea that life is never going to be stagnant. And in fact, impermanence is the only thing that we can all really count on, right? Mm, Right. Even that, even that is so hard for us as adults to wrap our head around because we so want to control everything. And the more rigid we become, the less flexible or adaptable we we, we ultimately become. But this is why I created the optimal health pyramid and I show it to the youth often because if you you could take a look at my website I can describe it briefly it's simply a three-tiered pyramid at the bottom is where I got kicked in the butt basically the train your brain I didn't know how I didn't know that was a thing but that is the foundation of your pyramid one step up from that is connect deeply surround yourself by those people who care about your self-care more than you do is that such a thing? But you can find those people mm-hmm. and ask those energy vampires to walk off your bus, the people that are sucking <laughs> the life yes. out of you. Yeah. The middle part of the pyramid is what I studied for 10 years, and I thought I was armored against everything out the eating better, the moving more, the resting smart. Those are amazing. But when you're down in the dumps, drinking a bottle of fish oil might not get you to where you need to be. So you need to do that, but you also have to focus on the foundation. And the top of the pyramid is, why does this all matter? What are you going to do? How are you going to impact someone else? And I have to say 90% of the youth, what they want to do is they want to come back and they want to be a social worker or they want to be a counselor or a youth worker. They, you know, they're half of my age and they already have such a vision that, I'm not going to let this happen to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So let that, if you have that, you have emotional resiliency. But right. if you don't have an impact or a purpose, you have nothing to hold on to. 
Yes. Um, so everyone, I'm looking at the pyramid right now. I want to give you a visual. I'm a visual person. So as Dr. Shahana said, it's the, that foundation at the bottom, then the decisions that you make in the middle, and then that impact. And I really like how you, what you added to impact is meaning, like purpose and meaning. And when I think about a couple of these key human needs that we're talking about today, one is connection, as we talked about at the beginning of the show. And it's like connection to community and then also purpose, right? I mean, those two things are so important. And if you have that purpose, um, it, 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 it drives you through the tough times. Like you persevere. You have the motivation to persevere because you have a purpose. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I had a 16-year-old who was actively using fentanyl and heroin and then went back to fentanyl. And I kind of looked at him and said, like, dude, like, this is, this is not going to go well. You know, we need to do something. No, no, no. It was a bit belligerent with me. And then I didn't see him for a long time. And of course, I started to get quite worried. So he came back and he said, I'm clean now. And we were talking and I said, so tell me about like how things went. And he looked at me and I said, I just told you I'm clean. And I said, oh, I said, I'm not asking for you. I'm asking because every other patient there might have the same problem as you. So you tell me, how did you do it? Mm. And he looked at me and said, oh, well, you know, I made sure I had a vomit bucket next to me and I made sure I had this. And I mean, and suddenly he was talking a mile a minute because I switched the focus that I don't, for, if you don't want me to talk about you, fine. But how can you use this awful experience to help someone else? Mm -hmm. And he just came alive. Yeah. So this, yeah. this is changing the cards, changing the dial. And I try to use this as much as I can, especially with those youth that don't want to talk to me very much. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, and, and youth these days are very other oriented. I mean, uh, so much orientation towards social justice and change and making a difference. And so that's been my experience as well. If you can harness that, particularly with our, our youth that are, they're anxious and so many are depressed. It's like to help with purpose for other, that's the impact you're talking about. Completely, yeah. completely. And, and I think there's a power in a healthcare practitioner looking at you and saying, teach me teach me mm -hmm. because I don't know mm -hmm. everything and I'm never going to know. I never going to know how it feels to get off fentanyl. Like right. I, I don't know. So teach me. Mm -hmm. And I think they suddenly feel I have something to share and that yeah. to them, they can walk out with their head held high. So if you had one, like, so I always do, often do the one thing. So one thing for listeners to do to increase their child's emotional literacy. What is one thing that a parent could do? So I'll give you a t something tangible because it's the mm -hmm. default answer would be improve your own emotional literacy, but I don't think you want to hear that right now. <laughs> so I'll give you what I do with my kids. You download an emotion wheel. You know what the biggest problem to emotional literacy is? We don't have the adjectives. We don't know what these emotions are. They've done studies, and I'm sure you can concur. Most of us have three, glad, mad, sad, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. need to increase the menu of options for your kids. And this, once again, is an active, not a passive process. So there's a beautiful Harvard emotion wheel yep. in the book, uh, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. I can give you all of these references a great one, Mood Meter is a simple app that yep. you can use that I use often if you have older kids or you know ones that they want to use an app. But it's that active process of going, my default answer is that I'm angry. But let's dig. Right. Dig a little deeper. Oh, you're actually embarrassed. You're actually disappointed. You actually feel guilty. And make sure we set age-appropriate expectations, right? Like right now, my youngest is two, and we are smack dab in the middle of, you know, he's angry, he hits. He's yeah. angry, he hits. Right. We, this right. is not an exercise I'm going to do with him, right? right? I'm right. still trying to shield myself from his hits. But basically, but also don't ignore that my four-year-old, for example, if they see something on TV, well, how do you think that person feels? 
What, right. what is that emotion? How, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're amazing at reading our faces. And yes. I often will tell my four and my six-year-old, mommy feels, I'm not angry. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Mommy feels depleted right now. Mm-hmm. Mommy needs a rest. Mommy needs to take five minutes just to take some time, whatever the case might be. So you teach it, you mirror it, you model it, and you go from there. And I think if you're doing yeah. that as a parent, kudos to you, because God knows we have our plates full. Absolutely. And so, yes, yeah, so increasing emotional uh, vocabulary, increasing that emotional awareness, helping give your child that those words. And I love the modeling. I love the modeling. They're, as you said, they're always watching us. They're always reading us. And um, to model that for them is increasing their emotional literacy. Now, the other thing that you said was my last question before the parent foot moment question. You actually answered it right at the beginning of this question. You're like, well, it's actually for parents to increase their own <laughs> emotional literacy, but that's what this is all about, right? The number one thing that we can do for our kids is to grow ourselves, be aware ourselves, and as you put, improve parents' own emotional literacy. Completely, completely. And I, you know what, when I, we talk about emotional literacy, and if we break that down into awareness as the most important one, and if we break awareness down into those steps of, you know, curiosity, compassion, and connection, I want to give parents a moment of compassion right now. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, with the steps of parenthood, a lot of the times what's missed is that feeling of, I see you, right? You know, I see you, I see you trying to put food on the table and trying to make the healthy meal and trying to work from home and trying to get your meditation in when like doing all of these things that you end up just feeling like those characters of cartoons that just get bashed in the head and they're constantly spinning yeah. So I'm here to give parents a moment of significance right now to, you know what, like you need to be seen, you need to be heard, and you need to feel that you're doing a darn good job of, for all of us, even those who are trained every day in this. Can I improve? Absolutely. Are there days that I don't do this well? Yeah, a lot. But you start again. And you start again. And just by listening to this, know that you're not alone. So I'm here just to say that I I see you and everything that you're doing. Thank you for acknowledging everyone. With that, Dr. Shahana, we're going to go to the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, became aware of yourself as a parent, or even had an awareness of your parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kid's life, and those you love. I have to say that for me, the one of the biggest moments, and this might be even controversial to some, but the moment that I realized I didn't need to enjoy every single aspect of motherhood was a very liberating moment for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When I realized that I did not need to embody this persona as only mom or only doctor, but I could be in a meshment of both of those things and more, And that my identity could actually change day to day, week to week, but my value system is somewhat fixed. That was liberating to me because there are many days where I am wiping the ground and never looking up and immersed in Lego and cooking and scrubbing the toilet. And I feel like a shell of myself. Mm -hmm. And on those days, do I enjoy motherhood? No, I would be lying if I said I did. But just like that gum analogy, stretching moments where my child looks at me or hugs me, or I see them playing nicely with each other for a change, those are the moments I take like a piece of gum and try to stretch out as long as possible. Yeah. So recognizing myself to be human, Mm. recognizing that pieces of my identity will constantly change as my kids grow up, but appreciating for once 
that my identity doesn't have to be transactional. I'm enough with who I am. You are enough just being you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And that can, you know, full circle of um, the transactional experiences of your childhood. You know, like these things, as you say, like they don't go away. We have to be aware of them and unlearn them and retrain themselves and start every day is a new day. Every day is a new day. Yeah. Well said. Thank you, Dr. Shahana, for sharing yourself with us, um, your awarenesses, your insights, your experiences as a practitioner, a healer. Um, it just means even more for people to hear it from you um, to just uh, connect all of us with our humanness. Where can people continue to follow your work? Best place is on my website, drshahana.com and Instagram, the Dr. Shahana. The Dr. Shahana. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you very much. Um, continue to do the wonderful work that you do. Um, it's inspiring to educate a generation of people with emotional literacy as, as, a, uh, as a cornerstone and foundation for health, wellness, and resiliency. Well, thanks for the opportunity to chat. And it's amazing how we can connect and share the similar language. So let's keep the yeah. conversation going. For sure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the show today. We appreciate your five-star reviews, sharing these shows, which will improve the lives of those you love. As always, I will ask you to try to be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question every day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.